housing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. This is Leanne Meyer, and this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. And I am so happy to be here, and I'm happy to welcome everybody um, to listen to the show, and of course, also my guest. But I want to share with you first that uh, our sponsors today, Kim Evans Institute for Integrative Medicine in Louisville, Kentucky, where they make you an active partner in your care and healing your mind, body, spirit, and soul. Kim has a new book out called Transforming Healthcare, Healing You, Me, and Our Broken Disease Care System. I love it, and I highly recommend it. Uh, For information, contact www.integrativemedicine4u.com. Integrative medicine is written out, and four is the number. U is just the letter U. Um, Also, uh, check out the very popular Holly Blue Nurse uh, nurse community app, which is for and about nurses, www.hollyblue.com, a community where nurses thrive. So our show episode today is called How and Why 4.6 Million Nurses Can Heal America. That might sound a little deep to you, and it should, because this certainly is a very deep topic. It might surprise you that the answer is relatively simple although not easy, as you will soon learn. My guest is Kathleen Bartholomew, uh, whom I first encountered on her TEDx video called Lessons from Nursing to the World. Kathleen uses storytelling to convey in 19 minutes some very complex yet easily recognizable realities in nursing. These realities have been called nurse-to-nurse hostility, nurses eating their young, and a whole lot more that come nowhere near addressing their real causes. When I asked Kathleen what she was most proud of in her career, she said her first book, Speak Your Truth, Proven Strategies for Effective Nurse-Physician Communication, which was her paper for her master's. In my several conversations since then uh, with Kathleen, I have to say that she is probably the most unique nurse that's been on the show and one of the most passionate uh, in all of the three and a half years that I've been doing this show. So please welcome with me Kathleen Bartholomew. Thank you, Leanne. You're so kind. (laughs) I appreciate it. I love the opportunity. Yes, it, uh, I just feel like um, this is a great opportunity for all of us. So um, I'd like to start with if you could give us just a, a brief um, explanation of your very unique um, uh, history of how you got to be a nurse and then how you got into uh, this issue of, of dealing with communication and, and lack of it in nursing and healthcare. Okay, I'd love to. In, uh, I never, I'd love to tell you that I always wanted to be a nurse. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could say that, but that is not the case. Uh, the short story is that in 1991, in a two-week period, I lost my relationship my, with my husband. Uh, that ended. Uh, I walked into my office to work, and I found I didn't have a job. And within two weeks, 
a tree fell on my house and the bank foreclosed. So in a two-week period, I felt like I had lost everything. And when I went to the lawyer to get a divorce, I was stunned when he took a Bible out from underneath his desk and he put it on the corner and he said, do you like nursing? And I said, what? He said, do you like nursing? And I'm like, well, I was a candy striper when I was 12. (laughs) I I had no idea where he was going. And he said, if you put your hand on this Bible and swear to me that you'll do, um, that you'll become a nurse, I'll do your whole divorce for nothing. And I knew a deal when I saw one. So I put my hand on that Bible. Uh, I have to tell you, at 36, I felt like a failure. I really did. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't see the perfection of it all then, but I do, I do now because the truth is, is that by the time I became a nurse, I was 39 years old. And uh, I saw things in the culture that you wouldn't see if you had been in it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, things that everybody thought were normal, I, I thought were abnormal, like a, a physician's yelling or overpowering nurses. I you know, yeah. and and like every nurse, there were some nurses that I got along with and some that I didn't, and that was fine. I hung around with the nurses who I felt accepted by, who, who I felt like I could ask them a question, and they, they wouldn't roll their eyes. Um, so it wasn't until five years later, I'd been a nurse for five years, and I accepted a position as a manager on an orthopedic unit, that a story happened that actually brings me to you today. Uh, this mm-hmm. story is responsible for it. The, starting the entire trajectory of my career. Um, one day I came on the floor and there was a PCA. Um, there was a crash cart next to uh, the room, 964, I can still remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, the patient had been found with an oxygen saturation of only 52%. They were in the ICU on a rebreather mask. They still couldn't talk in a sentence. The charge mm-hmm. nurse had given me the scoop. I took the PCA machine, I brought it down to my office, and I opened it up to find any manager's worst nightmare. It was uh, programmed for morphine, but instead there was a syringe of Dilaudid in the machine, and the patient, I yeah. estimated, had over 22 milligrams of Dilaudid. Oh, Just then, gosh. the new nurse came into the, my office. She opened the door, and I didn't even have to say a word. She just saw the syringe in my hand and mumbled something under her breath and burst into tears. You know, I tried to counsel her. I asked what happened. And finally, I said, what did you mumble under your breath? It sounded like I shouldn't have let them get to me. And then she explained. She said, I was seven or eight minutes late for my shift last night. When I came around the corner, there were a group of nurses talking. And as soon as everybody saw me, everybody stopped talking. She said, I went into the ladies' room. You can hear from there, you know. I heard somebody say, she'll never make a good nurse, will she? And another voice responded, she just doesn't have what it takes, does she? And she said, I let those words destroy me. Now, she was a really good nurse, and it turns out that she had opened the door every single solitary hour to check on that patient. But the husband was staying with his wife, and he shooed her out of the room. Um, And so it was at that moment that I realized the patients are never going to be safe unless the nurses are safe. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that was the pivotal moment. Yeah, that sounds like a pivotal moment. Um, It's so interesting. You know, I think uh, when you look back on your life, it's like in the moment you don't see it. But, you know, as time goes on, it becomes crystal clear. So um, what what was the progression from there? You you learned a very invaluable lesson then. And and what happened then? You were still a manager. Were you able to? I was, and I made. Mm hmm. 
Go ahead. I I made communication workshops um, mandatory. I explained to all the nurses that they, you know, if if we were not safe, if we didn't feel safe, that we couldn't, you know, it it impacts our ability to think. Like, it's about safety. It's not, like, just about being nice to each other. And it it doesn't matter if you like somebody or you don't. As professionals, we we need to provide an environment, uh, according to human factors, where we, we don't upset people because anybody who's upset will make a mistake. Mm-hmm. So uh, a few years later, when I was in my master's program, I attended a conference on nurse-to-nurse hostility. And at this time, I'm still thinking, what is that? You know, I, <laughs> I, I really didn't even have the words for it. But at the end of the conference, I collected 30 stories. And the stories just broke my heart. And I thought, wow, this is really something. I wonder why it happens. And, and when I started the research and I started to write Ending Nurse-to-Nurse Hostility and worked really hard on pulling the stories and trying to explain them, I recognized that it was all about power. So there's a lot of shame attached to, to the concept, the name, et cetera. But really, it's, I, I'm thrilled because this is how I understood, you know, how we could take our power back as nurses. Whenever there's a dominant group that has more power and it, it exerts its power down, the oppressed group who has no power unconsciously uh, starts attacking the other, you know, each other because they can't direct their power upward. And, mm-hmm. and historically, you know, the physicians in the system, et cetera, and administrators have had, have had more power. I'd like to give you an example of that if the audience would like sure. to do a, a quick exercise. And, I, I just wanted and to I, mention before you go on, too, is that I think there is not a person out there that works in healthcare that has not experienced what you just described. And I feel the pressure in my chest just listening to you talk about it. So, yes, do oh. share that exercise. You know, and the reason we don't, I mean, we might not have a name for it, but we know that, we know when somebody walks out of the room because we walked into the room, uh, a new mm-hmm. student nurse sees the nurse rolling her eyes when she finds out she has to work with a student, et cetera, et cetera. We, we say things sometimes like, oh, she's a good nurse. So we're supposed to ignore like the rest of the behaviors, et cetera, like that. But <laughs> yeah. really, it's, it's about the culture and culture is what everybody sees. That's what you're talking about, Leanne. You're mm-hmm. talking about the culture. Everybody knows it. Nobody talks about it, and it's not written down anywhere. That's the definition of, of my definition of what a culture is. Here's an mm-hmm. example of culture. Uh, we transfer a patient from the spine floor to the ICU. The new nurse who has been there for two years, yes, I still call her a new nurse at, at uh-huh. two years. I think you're still I do learning, too. <laughs> you know, in the ICU. Yeah. So she did an excellent job taking care of his cardiac system, but she never had a spine patient before. And not once in her eight-hour shift did she check his pedal pulses. When the doctor came in at 7 o'clock in the morning, um, there weren't any. He was rushed to emergency surgery, caught at Aquinas syndrome, and he's now a paraplegic. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody said anything negative to this nurse. However, the environment was one where they created it. Like, you, you shouldn't be asking questions after you've been here for two years. They didn't create an environment where it was okay to ask questions all the time, all the time, where you were always safe, where somebody would come up and say, hey, have you ever had a spine patient before? Because if you haven't, you know, there, you know I'd like to tell you a few things. We, we can't all know it all. Mm-hmm. So, so getting back to, to that's what culture is. We don't, we don't see the culture. We don't see the fact that sometimes there's a hierarchy in healthcare, and we think an ICU nurse or cardiothoracic nurse is somehow more important than a rehab nurse. You know, like mm-hmm. if you're an ICU nurse, you might be able to run seven pumps, but when I'm in rehab, I need a nurse who has seven months to stay with me until I'm walking, swallowing, or talking again. So mm-hmm. really, this is, it's a myth. It's, it's just a lie. 
So over five, 6,000 people at least in the last 10 years I've asked the same question to, and I'd like to ask your audience as well. Mm-hmm. If I could guarantee you in writing, give you a written guarantee that the conversation would turn out exactly the way you hoped, exactly the, what you wished for, that you'd, you'd both understand each other, is there somebody you would take my written guarantee and go have a conversation with right now? Somebody in your workplace. Absolutely. Or in your workplace, maybe. <laughs> yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then imagine I just rip it up and you're going to talk to them anyway. So I asked my audiences, how painful would this conversation be on a scale from zero to 10? And over, over 80% of every audience says it's, it's an eight, nine, or 10. Mm-hmm. And then I said, it doesn't matter who you're talking to or why. What matters is, can you tell me the reasons why you haven't had that conversation? And every single audience has the same answer, and that is fear. Fear mm-hmm. of making the situation work worse, fear of being isolated from the group, fear of hurting somebody else's feeling. There's another one, why bother? Nothing's, nothing's going to change anyway. Mm-hmm. So I that's, realized that... That's the one that many ahead. people want to use because it takes it out of their... Uh, there's nothing I can do anyway, so I just have to put up with it. In fact, I just heard this uh, on the Internet a couple of days ago. Well, let's call it what it is. That's called learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. And it means that person has already tried. You know, but the, the real right. question is, who's doing these things to you? Mm-hmm. Who's making you feel afraid? Who, who is doing it? It's not the dominant group. We're doing it to each other. And the yeah. reason I'm so excited about understanding this concept is because this is where our power is. Because if we're doing it to each other, we can stop. Mm-hmm. So according to Pedagogy of the Oppressed, you, we lift the veil to end oppression. And how do you lift the veil? By realizing that, hey, we're doing it. I'm the one who's rolling my eyes. We're, I'm the one who's sighing. I'm the one who's talking about somebody who's not present. You know, I'm the one who's not speaking my truth because I'm afraid of all those reactions in others. So how you get out of oppression, this unequal power balance that nurses have found themselves in, is to really to speak your truth, to say what you see, to have the courage to have that conversation. So we all did this exercise. So what would it take for you to have the courage to go back to your work environment and have a conversation with that person? Great question. (laughs) Go ahead and answer the question. We're all on bated breath here going to take courage, you know, it's yes. going to take courage, right? Right. Okay. So, so that's why I, if we remember one thing is we have to be dauntless. We have mm-hmm. to be dauntless and have that courage to speak our truth individually, or we will never be able to do it collectively. Yeah. You want to start to heal America? Heal your team, heal your floor, heal your shift. With that, you know, make sure actually, everybody it's a great... has everybody else's back. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Great lead-in. No problem at all. Um, uh, another of the ner- the um, books that Kathleen has written, and this was co-written with Martha Griffin and Aunt Arna Robbins, uh, called The Dauntless Nurse. And she was just talking about teams, and so I wanted to read this paragraph uh, about good teams. It says, good teams are respectful, encouraging, honest, and have open communication because they realize that their relationships with each other are the safety net that will catch human error. It's the patient that benefits the most when we work together, and the patient who is 
put in a vulnerable and potentially dangerous position when we are pitted against one another. One of the most critical aspects is that the best teams are non-hierarchical. No one no one person thinks that they are better than, worth more, or more important than another. And that just is so eloquent to me to say this is the this is the workforce I want to be in. And that's what I'm hearing from nurses all across the country right now. Oh, well, they're even more oppressed than ever. The system is just squeezing them dry. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's unconscionable. Uh, there's no other word. Uh, every person who's listening to this call, every nurse in the entire United States and maybe even the world has one thing in common, and that is every year we're asked to do more with less. Yes. And if, and, if that is and an for less. I don't know what is. With yes, more, and more. Yes. Yeah. Uh, here's an yeah. example. In our state, just a few months ago, a group of faculty were asked to work without any pay for six weeks. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, how <laughs> is that possible? So, so what you can do to, to is say what you see. When you see somebody roll your eye, their eyes, say, I noticed that you rolled your eyes. I noticed that you sighed when I handed you the report. I noticed. Just notice it. That's how, that's how you take the power away from all of our nonverbal behaviors. Yeah. And don't exactly. take it personally because it's not about you. It's, it's definitely not about you. If it wasn't you, people would do it. It's a way to, to relieve stress. And if you work in an environment where you hear people talking about somebody that's not there, then know that they're talking about you when you're not there. So if you want to stop gossip, then don't listen. Mm-hmm. Don't listen why anybody tears down a team member. You know, that's, that's how we can bring nursing together. It is so true. And, you know, most of us know this on some level of understanding, but we always feel like it's so big. You know, there's, there's so many more than me. I can't make a difference. And that's the thing that, that stops us from standing up in that moment. And I guess, you know, like you were saying, if they had the guarantee that it's going to come out the way they want it. And I guess what I've learned over years of nursing and then training myself on communication and and especially dealing with conflict communication, realizing that it can come out just the way that you want it to. But it's like anything else. You can't ride a horse the first time you get on the back. You can't, um, you know, name anything. You have to practice it. And that's well, we what we all missing, feel uncomfortable yeah. doing, right? So talk about yeah. that. Well we're, well, we're missing a skill set. The AACN standards clearly state that we must be as competent in our communication skills as we are in our clinical skills. So how mm-hmm. do you measure communication competency? When's the last time you had a competency for communication on your unit or in your hospital system? And not in your nursing school either. No, and that's where it needs to start, and that's why The Dauntless Nurse was written, because, I mean, the whole book came from a survey of 60,000 nurses where I said to the Student Nurses Association, tell me some stories from your clinicals. And the stories broke my heart. Mm -hmm. They were Mm -hmm. stories of being ignored and humiliated. And there were also some good stories, but the reason I... I'm so passionate about the dauntless nurses because every story in it is true. 
And if mm-hmm. we learned in nursing school how to handle these things, like Dr. Martha Griffiths, for example, she taught cognitive rehearsal. She taught her students how to handle them and role play them. When you role play, you create the neural pathways. You talk about practice, you create the neural pathways so that when that situation arrives, you already know how to handle it. Which is exactly why we do fire drills, why we do, you know, any of the emergency drills. We do all of those so that we're no longer having to think about it. It's automatic um, how we react. And we are responding automatically to conflict now. It's just not helpful. Well, what we know from human factors in the military is that under stress, and I can't can't tell you a nurse is not under stress these days, um, under stress we always revert back to our lowest level of performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've, we've got, you know, and cumulative fatigue. We don't know. I mean, I know nurses who have worked 23 12-hour shifts in a row. Yes. Do, do they know how tired they are or unsafe they are? Absolutely not. Why? Because they're human beings. You know, we yeah. don't understand ourselves as human beings. If we did, we, then we would understand why we're so afraid to have those conversations. Because the greatest need that we have is to belong. And when somebody disses us, they're saying that we don't belong. So when you understand that the greatest need for our soul is, is to belong to the group, it's like, we'll do anything. But let me tell you how I, why and how I have the courage to speak up in any situation. One, I wasn't assimilated. I didn't come in at 20 years old, so I came mm-hmm. in later and much older to the profession. But two, I don't speak up. I speak up for my patient. I don't say, oh, is it worth the risk for me? It's always a risk for my patient. And the most important thing in the whole world to me is my patient. As many people die every year from mistakes in hospitals as they did from the pandemic last year. Yeah. The same number. Pretty insane. And the number one cause of those mistakes is communication. So it's just, it's of vital importance. And I believe, I imagine that if every school, you know, taught the communication school skills, taught about the culture that nurses were walking into, then they would truly be prepared and their sense of self-esteem would not fall. Mm-hmm. And that, that's actually another point. Even in large organizations where they are teaching uh, conflict communication, they're teaching it to basically the managers and above. <clears throat> Excuse me, they're not teaching it to the staff nurses who are probably dealing with the most conflict, you know, patients, families, doctors, other units, um, getting something delivered at a certain time, and they don't get any um, training in how to do that. Right. Right. And we all have to be leaders, and that's an inherent part of leadership training. Every single one of us is a leader, regardless of where our position is. That was one of the things that I uh, really promoted when I was working uh, at a large hospital here in Minnesota. And um, I had pushed and pushed and pushed forever. I'd done years and years teaching uh, conflict communication skills to managers and above. But I was determined that we were going to get it to the frontline nurses. And I finally got uh, an agreement to at least work with the charge nurses and, you know, encouraging them to work with the other nurses also and hoping it would go. And then it ended up, I, I ended up getting laid off and I was able to do the pilot and I was able to do one program, which everybody said, this is fantastic. I, I'm going to tell all my friends to come to this. And I had to tell them, I'm so sorry, but this is my last week. And um, unless they, <clears throat> the department decides to, you know, have somebody else do it, it's probably not going to continue. And it did not continue. 
You know, Leanne, it comes down to values. When, when we don't speak our truth, it's called self-silencing, and there's a lot of research on that. The research says that people who self-silence value the relationship with each other more than anything else. And, and the, why this education is so different is nobody tells you what you value. That's something inherent. You know, right. we, th- those are personal. And I value the patient. So until every nurse values the patient more than their own psychological, emotional, or safety, then, you know, things won't change. Yeah. I've had a lot of nurses who have said that, that they can't stand up for themselves, but they will stand up for their patient. Every Which time is you good. stand up for yourself, <laughs> you are standing up for your patient. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we're actually kind of close to a break point here. So I think this might be a good place for us to take a break. And um, <clears throat> we can um, uh, uh, just uh, have a few minutes here and then come back in just a couple of minutes here. So um, today is our topic is how and why 4.6 million nurses can heal America. We're getting to that. So my guest is Kathleen Bartholomew, an internationally known speaker and educator who uses... You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. WomenInHealthcare.org, a national nonprofit, is our newest partner at Once a Nurse. It is among the most rapidly growing professional development groups for women in healthcare today. Through healthcare education, professional development, mentorship, community, and a focus on self, the organization empowers women with the tools needed to advance their careers. They use initiatives to break down barriers within organizations and equip women with the tools needed to open a powerful force for gender parity. 80% of the healthcare workforce is female, with nurses a massive majority of that percentage. But less than 20% of leadership is female. Join womeninhealthcare.org as they help all women of all ages and all levels rise up. Use code HEALTHPROS to receive $50 off the annual membership fee and receive discounted pricing for events, free resources, webinars, and a substantial discount for our annual leadership summit on October 22, 2020 womeninhealthcare.org to be where you want to be in the world of healthcare. Hey nurses, what would you say is the hardest part about being a nurse? Well, most of you would say it's putting everyone else's needs before our own, which means not enough time for self-care. And this is why Holly Blue has created a peer support and community app just for nurses, so you can take care of you. Holly Blue is the ultimate nurse app to help you connect with local nurses, organize your nurse life in one place, restore your love for nursing, and empower you to thrive in a field that needs you. Want to see how it works? Student nurses, nurses, and retired nurses can download this free app on the App Store or Google Play now. Just type in H-O-L-L-I-B-L-U or go to hollyblue.com to start connecting. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. 
Welcome back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. And um, this is Leanne Meyer. I'm here today with Kathleen Bartholomew, and our topic is uh, how and why 4.6 million nurses can heal America. And I am really eager to get to this conversation, this part of the conversation. And so I think that that's what we'll do. And I would like to, if anybody is just coming in now, just to let you know that Kathleen is an internationally known speaker. She's done a TEDx um, uh, show that I encourage you to go to YouTube. You just have to put in Kathleen Bartholomew and you will get her. Uh, she has written three books that I know of that are excellent. And The Dauntless Nurse is probably uh, one of the easiest. It's so succinct and and it goes right to the heart of the matter of how to deal with these communication problems we've just been talking about. So uh, I want to invite Kathleen back, and let's let's go to this. How can nurses heal America? Right now, they feel like they're the most unhealthy people in the world. Yes, I, I can see why. Um, so so. Two things. First of all, 4.6 million nurses is uh, Canada and the United States, and I include Canada because I spent so much time in Canada. They've invited me up several times to speak, and I've been in every province, so I consider them America as well. Um, so, I mean, as part of, of the nursing group. So I think that you can't heal America. Uh, innovation, the definition of innovation is you're going from where you are to where you want to be. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we don't know where we are, uh, and I think that the first place that we can start in this conversation is by an accurate picture or trying to paint an accurate picture of where we are in 2020, and I'm not talking about COVID, and mm-hmm. you could do an entire show on COVID, so let's just talk about everything not COVID. What happened in 2020 while we were quarantining? You know, what are the things that happened? So. I subscribe to a couple magazines and I save them all. And at Christmas, I take, take my stack of 50 or 60 of them and I sit down, I cut down, I cut up every little detail about healthcare. I, anything that has to do with healthcare or the health of America, I cut it out. And then I, I lay it out and I, I try to put it together like a puzzle. What's happening to my country? And mm. I noticed that things fell into five different areas. There's a, a polarized political environment. We have a poisoned and or inefficient food supply. We have a business for profit model, extremely sick Americans. And then there's social and economic factors. And I'd, I'd just like to talk a little bit about that. But rather than reading you statistics, I'll just start with a story. Imagine mm-hmm. you are a mom and you go to the store and you pick up some baby food because you're running low. And then you pick up uh, some special tea bags for your mom because she's just had hip surgery and you take her over to your mom and she's not feeling well and she hasn't felt well and, uh, and she seems to be feeling worse. So you're going to cheer her up. Now, what, that's just a simple everyday thing that many people might do, right? Very plain and simple. But I want to point out that we are oblivious. We are oblivious to what is, is really Going on, for example, you know, baby food has such harmful levels of arsenic, lead, cadmium, and mercury that they tested 168, all different brands, and 94% of them contained lead, and 25% of them contained all four of arsenic, lead, cadmium, and mercury. The silk tea How bags is that, that even we possible? Are, I don't know, because our FDA is owned by industry. 
Oh, my goodness. Why would you want to put those in there? I mean, you know, go on. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt the story. So your, your silk and tea bag, the real, special, yeah, the real special silk and tea bags that you uh, got for your mom. McGill University did a study and found out that each tea bag puts out 11.6 billion microplastic particles into your body. You know, your mother, who has not been the same since her hip surgery, she had a metal-on-metal hip surgery. So she's got toxic levels of cobalt that her, her doctor diagnosed her as, as dementia. And, and it's really not dementia at all because over 10 million people have metal-on-metal hips. And uh, Johnson & Johnson, you know, has not taken them off the market. Hmm. So... Uh, that's just a, a little story. That let me go into the other areas. I mean, polarized political environment. Uh, 45% of Americans skip visiting a doctor for an issue because of money, and 46% had to borrow money from a family and friends to pay a health care bill. And as I just watched as, watched as my daughter lost her house, her husband was in the uh, hospital for three days, spinal meningitis, and uh, $23,000. <sighs> You know, we don't have nurses in schools, even though in 2016, the American Pediatric Association recommended that because the school nurses don't come out of a health budget. They come out of the education budget. So you've got nurses running from school to school. We've got unbelievable inequities. I mean, let's just look at Milwaukee County in Wisconsin. The blacks make up 26% of the population and 81% of the deaths from COVID. So our healthcare, our environment, it's, it's politicized. You know, as for poisoned and inefficient food supply, I mean, it's not just the baby food and the, and the tea bags. I mean, it's hunger. I mean, 5.6 million households had trouble putting food on their table in December. That's a, that's a lot. Ultra-processed f- foods are what's fueling the obesity epidemic, and do- which will take us right to extremely sick, sick Americans, where we, in 1985, not a single state had a higher than a 15% obesity rate. And now in 2020, every state has an obesity rate over 20%. Wow. When you think that uh, 47%, so half of Americans suffer from the top chronic diseases of diabetes, obesity, heart disease, chronic lung, and chronic kidney. You've got epidemic rates of depression, suicide, and anxiety, and the United States has the highest suicide rate among wealthy nations. I mean, it increased for just in 15 years from 2000 to 2014, our suicide rate increased 24%. I mean, in 2020, kids that were between the ages of 5 and 11, 24% increase in mental health visits. Kids between the ages of 12 and 17, 31%. So, I mean, a business for profit And that's assuming model. that the mental health care they're getting is appropriate and helpful to that individual. And that's a whole other topic. That's right. And then the business for profit model, which is, to me, at the core of everything. It is not possible to achieve wellness and health in a system that is wired to profit from illness and disease. Yeah. It's just not possible. It's, it's wired backwards. I mean, our, our drug costs are exorbitant. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, big pharma prices just in a four-year period went up 40 to 71%. Everybody knows about the epinephrine, and most people know about insulin doubling in the last eight years. But do you know that one in every four Americans ration their insulin? In Singapore, mm-hmm. the same vial costs $48. $6 yeah. it costs in Australia. It's free in Italy. $300 in America. Yeah. You've got the opioid epidemic. 
You know, you've got 2,000 healthcare workers dying from COVID because they don't have the right equipment. And then social and economic factors. How is it possible that in, that in 2020 we could have 578 mass shootings? Does anybody even remember them being in the news? No. And child pornography was the most disturbing to me of all of them. So last year, the tech companies reported 45 million online pictures and videos of children being sexually assaulted to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and that number is double what it was just two years ago. 45 million. Can you believe that? Hmm. Tell me you have a solution coming here (laughs) down the line. Tell you about the solutions? Yeah, well, just let me know that it's coming. Okay, so that's just, yeah. Uh, so I tell you what I did. I, I was trying to get creative, and I, I love my country, and I love my profession. And I thought, what could I do? What, what, how about if I pretended that America was my patient? What would I do? How would I make a nursing plan of care for America? And so I thought carefully, what would my diagnosis be? And my diagnosis would be a failure to mobilize, despite millions of nurses, mm-hmm. or a failure to actualize nursing's potential. Because, you know, people don't notice that the health of the country, regardless of COVID, is, is spiraling down. This is the first year that our, um, I keep thinking left, length of stay, our lifespan has decreased. In an industrialized country, our lifespan is now decreasing. So, mm-hmm. so I looked at it like that and thought, well, why? Okay, so let's look at the symptoms and let's make an assessment and let's figure out a plan for how we can turn things around. So you have to know where you are. You can't just know where you want to be. You have to know where you are. And so this, I think, taking a realistic, and it is painful, look at where we are, you know, as a country. But, I mean, the the pace of life is so quick. I mean, these data points just come to us as little sound bites, and we don't really get to put them all together anywhere because the news is monopolized by sensationalism most of the mm-hmm. time. So the three symptoms that I noticed in our nursing profession, if, if I could, you know, in yeah, America. Please do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the profession, there's oppressed group behavior. We have a collective learned helplessness, and we have a lack of a knowledge deficit. So I'll start with the easiest one. The knowledge deficit is we, we don't have a common language to define what a nurse is. When I ask a thousand nurses what is nursing, I get different answers. The ANA definition is, what, 40 words long, and I haven't met anybody that knows it yet. But the most important thing is not that we know the definition. The most important thing is that if we can't articulate, articulate and if we can't have a shared common language with ourselves, then how are we going to portray to the general public what we do? Because they don't understand what we do. Everybody's always saying that nursing is the most trusted profession, and they're taking so much pride in that. But I, I just ask why? And the sociology background in me led me to a book called The Culture Code, where I found out that the code in America for nursing is mother. And that is why we're the most trusted profession. That is the reason. So we have a PR problem. We're not just mothers. We're highly skilled. The same hand that holds the hand of a dying patient, that's the hand that just titrated a dopamine drip in the last room. Like, I am amazed at this profession. We're the best of head, you know, and heart. You know, we, we are so holistic, nothing like medicine, which is to diagnose and treat. I mean, mm-hmm. I think this, nurses to me are the smartest people I've ever met in my life, and I've had other careers. I've been in radio. I've been a full-time teacher. I've been an administrative analyst at all those before I came into nursing. 
And I am wowed by the critical thinking skills and the skills of nurses. I mean, I have to say, it's just, I'll just talk about the nurse two weeks ago. My ex-husband died of COVID. And this highly skilled ICU nurse, you know, did for me. I mean, she, she went in and she played a song for him while he was on the ventilator. It meant the world to me. It meant, it meant so much to me, more as well as all those machines that she could, you know, operate at the exact same time. But for him to hear that song, it, it just was amazing. Mm-hmm. So where am I? <laughs> I am so passionate about things I get, I yes. get lost. So how can, how can we do it? Well, um, I think that we have to understand that, you know, we can't be oppressed anymore. We can't act like that. And how we stop doing it is we heal the, our peer-to-peer relationships. Um, we recognize that we, don't, we have many, many lovely organizations, many great organizations in nursing, but not one organization that can make a collective impact. Our scope differs by state. We have diverse curriculum. We disagree over the college le- requirements for a registered nurse. That's just some of the symptoms. And as for we our learned even, helplessness, I mean... <clears throat> we even disagree whether holistic is with a WH or with an H. And that's quite a big difference. So you have to realize that when a group doesn't have power, it really cares about its own power and it tries to keep its own power. Another example of our learned helplessness is staffing ratios. Um, People are fighting for grids because nurses are being given six, seven, eight patients. and, and, And it's the wrong fight. The fight should be, why can't the nurse, why can't the charge nurse, why can't he or she who can run a code and who knows the condition of every single patient on that unit in real time make the decision of how many uh, nurses they need to, to care for, to provide safe quality care. Mm-hmm. I Talk mean, about when you are a manager. <clears throat> Use that example. Of, of uh, encouraging your charge nurses to oh, ask yeah. for what they needed. Yes, we had a staffing grid, all hospitals do. And so when I was a manager, I would say to my charge nurses, you staff this unit like your mother was in one of the rooms, but you don't know which one. In other words, you staff it like you see fit. And sometimes they'd go up a nurse. They'd say, oh, you mean we can go up a nurse? You know, like asking permission, pay, playing the children's mm-hmm. game, Mother May I? And I said, of It's not, can you go up a nurse? If the floor is not staffed safely, you must go up a nurse. But I am not on the floor. You are. So you are the person to make the decision. It's just that nobody ever knocks on my door in the entire time I've been here and said, hey, can we go down a nurse? (laughs) So recognize that if you're going to go up a nurse sometimes, then I expect you when you're low or when you have discharges to go down a nurse. But I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm not there. You know, so I mean, it's, it's sad because, you know, since then the power has been taken away of the, with those nurses. But I'm so passionate about creating this community in nursing because we already created it on our floor. And uh, those nurses, I mean, there is no hierarchy. Everybody helps each other. Everybody's got each other's back. Top 10% patient employee and physician satisfaction. No turnover. I mean, I, I never had turnover. Nobody ever I left. bet you when somebody left for to move, they recommended somebody to come in their place. Just just Actually, to Leanne, because well, well, because people floated to the our unit from other places mm-hmm. in the hospital. I had a waiting list for both floors for for yeah. every shift. Exactly. I had like, an opportunity at one point where I was teaching managers, and that was one of the things that I said: is if you have a problem, you know, with um, keeping your employees. Um, 
you know, one, you need to be that person who is encouraging them to move on to their highest potential because they will then replace themselves. Right, right. So let's talk about, you know, hope. Let's talk about what we can do. I mean, we have to use the metaphor of the river. A nurse was going down to the river and she was on a hike and somebody screamed and she, she realized that somebody needed help. So she pulled them out of the river and they were hurt. So she bandaged them up. And then somebody else yelled, and she pulled them out of the river. And then there were more people, so she called for more nurses and called for more doctors. And they kept pulling people out of the river. Days turned into weeks, years, decades as they pulled people out of the river. And then one day, like a swarm of swallows, without any warning, every nurse stood up and walked away. The doctor yelled, where are you going? You can't leave us. Where are you going? And the very last nurse turned around and said, we're going to see who's throwing these people down the river. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're at. Yeah. That is the point where we're at. We have to stop and see what's throwing people down the river. Instead of, and we're so focused. We're so focused on every day. I mean, it's overwhelming sometimes just to get your charting done and, and, mm-hmm. and the complexity of healthcare and the complexity of illness and working. And even if you're not in the hospital, no matter where you are, working. It's, it's so complex that it's, mm-hmm. it's very important that we say, okay, why do we have so many sick people and what can we do? Well, what we imagine, we become. So what do you imagine for the future of healthcare? What do you want yeah. to see? So I, I did some research on that and I was like, wow, nobody's written anything. So maybe <sighs> I can just pretend, you know? So I wrote a, 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 a little paragraph. In 2021, Americans finally realized that unless a nation spends as much on the social determinants of health that they do on actual medical costs, the economy will suffer. 75% of nurses in 2025 now work in public health. Nurses who practice in the hospital primarily care for patients with complicated comorbidities, providing ongoing intense education and pioneering research. Nurses banded together insisted on a 3% pharma tax, and that money was used for nursing and boosted and energized the entire profession, especially the educators. In 2030, every nurse works an eight-hour clinical shift followed by two hours on whatever they choose. I mean, let's, you know, like Carl Sandburg said, nothing happens if not first a dream. So, so what is right. the dream? Yeah. So, you know, so I heard more somebody say there is nothing that human beings cannot do as long as we can imagine it. Yes, if you can imagine it, you can do it. So, so now we're yeah. talking about innovation, really, because we've talked about where America is, you know, where our country is, where our patient is, and we've talked about where mm-hmm. our profession is, and and now we're talking about where we want to be, what what is possible, and and what can we do on an individual level and collectively to get there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've mentioned a few things already, but the first thing is, it might seem simple, but it's not. Speak your truth. I mean, mm-hmm. as individually, as we speak your truth and you find your voice, you say what you see in your, in your work environment, in your school, in your, in your mental health program. No matter what it is, say what you see, because as we start to do that individually, then we will be, do that collectively. You know, and that does take courage. The other mm-hmm. thing is, if, if we don't have a common definition about what nursing is, I mean, start talking to your family, friends, church, talk about the outcomes that you achieve. What are the outcomes as a nurse that you achieve? Let's, let's shift the focus to the outcomes that nurses get, okay? And then recognize that, that we can't do anything if, if we don't become politically active. And the simplest, most effective thing we can do to stop this river coming down 
the number one thing is to do the recommendation of the American Pediatrics Association and put a nurse in every school. And what's required mm-hmm. for that, of course, is a policy change because nurses in schools come from the education budget, and that's why they're cut. I mean, I wrote an edit- op-ed in the Seattle Times after two of our students died. One, one student died with their head five feet from the EpiPen that would have <sighs> saved her life. Wow. You know? Well, and we need nurses uh, in every boardroom. We need nurses on every decision-making committee that has anything to do with patients in every hospital. And not just a, a person sitting in a chair, but a person who is standing up and saying, this is what you don't know. This is what you don't understand. And this is starting to happen. Last year, uh, nurses that were trying to get 10,000 nurses on um, 10,000 boards, not just healthcare, but all industries, uh, met their goal. And so I'm hoping that they're doubling or tripling that goal now. But I just feel like with nurses on uh, in every part of America, that the perspective will change, that people will look at, at um, what is success, what is um, making a lot of money, what, what is the point in all of this, if we can just take the perspective of nurses, which is basically coming from a point of health. Right. I mean, I, I, maybe I take, people will tease me, maybe I take being a nurse a little bit too seriously, but I, I think <laughs> we, we, we need to role model illness you know, health and wellness ourselves. And uh, in every occasion, I mean, I just walked into a, uh, was it a, a depart, um, can't think of the name. I walked into a drugstore and the mm-hmm. little girl in front of me could have been nine years old, was overweight and was buying a four pack of the Reese's peanut butter cups. And I, mm-hmm. she, her parent wasn't with her. So I said, you, you know, that's got a lot of sugar in it and it's not good for you. And she looked at me, and she didn't say anything. And she goes, finally, she said, it's not for me. It's for my sister. And I said, oh, you're a smart one. Want to be a nurse? (laughs) And it was the way her eyes followed me all the way to my car that I knew she would be a nurse someday. (laughs) All right. Yeah, she'll be on a show like this, and she'll be saying, you know, I have a very funny story about wanting to become a nurse. Um, So you've got like another minute or so. Is there something you really want to make sure that we get in here? Yes. I mean, I I, I mean, it wasn't what I was planning on saying, but I I think it's the most important thing is please know that we can't deliver wellness. We can't keep Americans healthy. We can't keep anybody healthy in the current system. We have to change the model. Donna Bidian said structure dictates process, dictates outcomes. And we keep focusing on the processes and the outcomes. And it's the wrong structure. The structure mm-hmm. that we have is wired to, to give many, many people millions of dollars at the mm-hmm. expense of, of people who are sick. So mm-hmm. look who's happy with the current system. Look who's making yeah. billions of dollars from the current system. And, may, you know, work hard to make health care a public utility. I believe it. Everybody has a right to health care. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's your belief, but I believe that... Everyone has a right to it, just like they have a right to water and, and yeah. sewer and electricity. The thing that I can't understand that people don't seem to get is that if we have, for the most part, 90% of our people healthy 
at any given time. Those people are happy. They are thinking. They are um, entrepreneurs. They're innovating. They're finding jobs for themselves, and they're probably creating jobs for other people. They're paying taxes. They're buying, you know, various things that will make their lives um, better. And and this enriches our entire world. And the more that we deny people health and we, you know, if people are not healthy, they cannot do any of those things. And so they become a burden on society. And that's not really what we want. So, sorry, interrupted. If the pandemic has pointed out anything, it's that, that we're all connected. Yes, absolutely. That is so true. So, um, I hate it when this happens, but we have come to the end of our show, and <clears throat> I um, <clears throat> have a frog, frog in my throat here now. Um, I just really want to thank you for coming, and I really uh, thank you for uh, in story form, and that's basically I know how you like to teach and, and speak. Um, it makes so much difference to us to be able to hear these stories and um put them, you know, not just a statistic, but in the the uh, context of people, of human beings, of ourselves, of people we love and care about. So um, it isn't, you know, the, the title of this was How and Why 4.6 Million Nurses Can Heal America. Um, it's not about, uh, it's not a hard thing in some ways. And um, we know what makes people healthy and thrive. And we know that keeping them healthy uh, and that is what nurses primarily focus on, and we need nurses to focus even more on that. Um, we know what makes a healthy workplace. Uh, Quint Studer was uh, an organization that my company that I worked with uh, learned from for five years, and living in that um, organization was bliss. I can't even tell you all of the different ways that people were learning to have a relational organization, which um, it, for some reason, for some people, it seemed like that was just made no sense to them at all. Uh, Joe Tai is somebody who has been on um, my show a couple of times, and he is the, a founder of Values Coach. And he's a proponent of Florence Nightingale's philosophy of nursing and healthcare for healthcare companies. He actually teaches companies how to create that kind of an environment. And just what you're describing about, you know, putting nurses first, putting the housekeeping people first, putting everybody who uh, uh, is making yes, caring. caring, yes, and making a difference and, and now risking their lives showing the importance that they have, not by asking them to take less money or taking furloughs or being laid off or asking them to work, like you said, 20, 12-hour shifts in a row, which is absolutely insane. Um, so we know all of these things. And we know that what makes healthcare workers want to save lives and want to come back is giving them the time and the tools to connect to patients relationally. But again and again, we refuse to provide it because it does not make money to the level that promoting de- disease care does. So I'm asking each person listening today, please do not just walk away from this show. Please share it with other nurses, friends, family, and deeply consider yourself what you can do to transform healthcare, and if you're willing to make that effort. And that's probably the biggest question of all. So if you have ideas, you know, while you're 
been running around and, and seeing what works or doesn't work in the organization that you're in, please contact me at leanne at onceanurse.com, or you can also go to my website, www.onceanurse.com. Please share your ideas. Please share your determinations of what you're going to do in the organization that you are in. It means stepping up, and that's something that all of us sometimes feel uncomfortable with. But you might be very surprised to find out there's a lot of other people who want to do this too. And so that's what Kathleen and I are doing. We're working to be a part of transforming healthcare. Please join us. And until our next show, make it a great week and don't let anyone take it away. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.